0: Welcome back to another episode of Tank Talks. I'm your host, Matt Cohen. And on this week's episode, we welcome Pablo Srugo from Mistral VC to discuss how to find product market fit and the misconceptions most first-time founders face when trying to find PMF. Pablo shares his entrepreneurial journey, co-founding Gym Track, and the lessons learned from the experience, along with his transition into venture capital at Mistral. Pablo also discusses how his entrepreneurial background influences his approach to assessing startups, emphasizing the importance of solving real top-of-mind problems and understanding customer feedback. We dig into pivoting and PMF strategy and the crucial role of pivoting in a startup survival with real-world examples that Pablo uncovered during his time as an investor. Lastly, we discussed Pablo providing advice for founders on balancing long-term vision with the immediate need to find product market fit and the importance of integrating customer feedback and market understanding in their strategy. Now let's jump into the tank for this week's episode with Pablo Srugo from Mistral. Thanks for joining us in the tank today, Pablo.
1: Matt, it's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here.
0: You know, Pablo, I'm super excited to have another podcast host in the tank today, as I've been listening to your show entitled Product Market Fit for the last little while now, and it's absolutely amazing. But for our listeners who don't know you so well, or your show, it'd be great if you provide us a brief background on your journey as an entrepreneur and operator before transitioning into venture capital.
1: Happy to. Yeah. So my background, I mean, in a nutshell, we can dive into whatever, but you know, I'm a founder turned VC. I, I studied economics, and then I started my first business, which was... Not really a venture back play. The first one was a tutoring marketplace, but really more like tech tech enabled services, I-, I would say. With a good friend of mine, we started that right out of university. That went relatively well. It wasn't like it was never supposed to be something huge, but it, you know, let's say paid the bills and was relatively easy to run. And uh, we ended up selling that about a year in. Again, nothing big, but we were like 22-year-olds living on a twenty-two-year-old lifestyle, right? So so it helped us provide, let's say, personal runway. And then we started a venture back startup called GymTrack, which was in the vent in the wearable space back when, like 2014, Apple Watch was just coming out. Wearables were super hot, IoT, quantified self. So frankly, we we kind of wrote that wrote that hype. We went through 500 startups, NSF. We raised six million dollars, and then we frankly spent six million dollars trying to build out hardware, AI, software, all these sort of things. We were too, you know naive 22 business type, So like frankly, we didn't know what we were getting ourselves into. And that's that's probably why we went forward anyways. Anyways, that was a five-year journey. Again, can dive into that. But bottom line, at one point, we had to pivot. We brought in a new CEO. I worked with him for a couple of years, somebody more experienced who I'm still very close with. After a couple of years, I just felt he had things under control. Things were either going to work or they weren't, but I wasn't really going to make such a big difference. And so I decided, you know what, maybe it's time for me to go do something else. And so I left, I started exploring a few ideas. I was in Ottawa at the time. And effectively, I just met somebody who knew the founders of Mistral, which is a, a seed stage firm that's based in Ottawa, but invests across Canada. And they were like, hey, they happen to be looking for someone. Do you do you want to chat with them? It wasn't something I was looking for, but as you know, Serendipity plays such a big role in, in life as it did for me that time. And I decided to kind of walk through that door, had some conversations with Bernie and co, the two founders. I think there was just fit both ways. So that was five and a half years ago. That was mid-2018. Really haven't looked back since and so that's you know since then kind of grew into this partner role spent some time in montreal spent a couple of years in toronto and now i've made my way back to to uh, ottawa where i where i spent most of my life and frankly my hope is to be at mistral for many decades to come
0: <laughs> you know those journeys that you went through with your first company that you sold yeah just provide that personal runway you know a lot of people have that you know transition but then going all in on venture capital back funding startup with gym track it must have shaped the way you think about how going into a startup journey is all you know—roses and flowers and exciting—and and, and that opportunities are endless. But then when the reality sits in, you got six million dollars that you're already spent through, and you got to show something for it. It really changes the way you think about entrepreneurship, and then obviously the way you evaluate another opportunity when it comes around. So, how does the way that your journey through GymTrack shape the way that you are thinking about evaluating startups now at Mistral? For potential investments, there's been
1: so many lessons right through that five year journey. As any 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 founder that's been through it once or twice knows that that the learnings are infinite, frankly. But th- I think one of the things that's been most important to me, having been through it myself, is empathy. And and I don't know that that makes me, let's say, a better picker investor. But one of the realizations I had really early on, maybe six months into my my venture career, we get deal flow, like we're inundated with opportunities. And it would be really easy for me had I not been through it myself to start feeling like, man, it's pretty easy to get the 10k MRR. It's pretty easy to get the 50k MRR. Like there's just so many companies that that get there. And then all the hubris that would come with that, having gone through it myself and knowing, realizing just how difficult every step is. Like we'll have a board meeting and they'll be like, yeah, this quarter, you know, we got a grant from IRAP. We hired these five people. and And it's kind of like you're in this passive reactive mode, like, okay, cool. It's easy to kind of fall into that. But I remember getting an IRA grant, like that was work, right? I remember like trying to convince someone to join my fledgling startup and abandon their, you know, secure role or whatever they were making. That was a huge win, like every single one of those little things. That's, I think, the biggest lesson for me is just having that empathy and, and consistently kind of r- reminding myself of really what it was like. And basically every single founder I speak with, is extremely accomplished. And yeah, sure, we, we pick the ones that we have the best, best fit with, but this is not not an easy road.
0: No, empathy is the key word that I always think about when I talk with founders and other potential investors is that if you've come from traditional finance or a legal profession or consulting, it's really hard to put yourself in that founder's journey, especially for those small wins. You know, Celebrating those small wins is harder for somebody from the outside unless they've sat in the founder seat before. So I totally agree with you on that. But there's also a part about telling people the hard truths that they don't actually always hear from when they're sitting with their co-founders that you, as an investor, can share with them in an empathic way. So maybe you can share with us some you know, experiences you've had about the common challenges that startups face when trying to achieve product-market fit.
1: Besides being you know founder and a VC, I also was an EIR at a regional innovation center called Invest Ottawa. And the nice thing about that was It was crazy volume, right? Like probably through that, I worked with maybe over 100, well over 100 companies, all super early, like truly idea stage. Before we would come in, like Mistral would not look at these companies because they're pre-pre-seat sort of thing, right? And this is almost my challenge. Like you look at incubators and accelerators and they focus on what I would call like the other 10%, maybe at most the other 20%, the polish, the deck, the storytelling, you know, going through the motions, the legal. But I'll tell you this, 95%, I would say, of idea stage startups fail simply because they're not solving an important enough problem in the first place. It's really hard to acknowledge as a founder, and it's, it's just as hard to kind of get that message across to the other side because you're, it's one thing to say, look, I think you should change your story this way. You know, this part of the pitch deck is not that great. Okay, cool. Like, that's fine. I'll go fix it. But it's another thing to go at the core of it and say, listen, like, I don't think what you're doing matters, <laughs> which I would never say that way. But like, I don't think your customers think that what you're doing matters. By the way, I've experienced this myself with my own startup. I've seen it in other startups as well, so I know from both sides what that looks like and what that feels like, and that's something that I'm constantly kind of attuned to because if you don't have that core nugget, nothing else that you do is going to matter. I mean, best case scenario, you pivot and you find that nugget, but if you don't, you you can't kind of
0: force your way out of that. There's just just never going to be the pull you need. Oh, such good points. I mean, I can't tell you how many people say to me, you know, you got to look at this startup. They've got such a great website or they got such a great team or they got some great traction. And I always say to them, but like, why is this such an important problem for us to think about solving? And why is this a venture backable problem to be solving is really a hard thing. And someone said to me the other day, like, why do you think pre-seed is is better than seed? You know, when seed has traction, it's been de-risked, there's already customers to talk to, things like that. I'm like, The problem with a lot of C companies or C plus companies is they choose the wrong problem with the wrong customers and the wrong revenue mix too early. And I'd rather come in before that to tell them, no, 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 don't focus on 90% of those customers. They're not your actual customers. They're the ones who may pay you for something right now through a managed service or tech enabled business. But who are your long-term scalable customers that we want to be involved with? Because we've seen so many companies choose the wrong early customers to build for and it ends up blowing up in their face. Wouldn't you agree?
1: I could agree more. Let me tell you, actually, I was speaking with, uh, it was Jay Myers, the founder of Bold, and he was telling me a story about the early days of Bold Commerce. And as you know, they have so many different products, a diff- bit of a different animal. But he, he told me about this one time that he's having this kind of discussion with his team, and, and they're talking about different ways to, to go about it and different things to explore. You know, after listening to a bunch of conversation, he was like, listen, guys, if we wanted revenue, let's go start a lawn mowing company. Let's just do that, right? Like, if that's what we're after, let's just go do that. Like, we can get revenue that way. And and I think the point struck me because it was like, it's so true. And, and it's weird, right? Because at the end of the day, revenue is the thing. I mean, if you don't get the revenue, you don't get meaningful revenue, you're not a business, right? But in the early days, I almost say, like, forget revenue, find value, right? Because you can get led astray so many different ways. And the extreme of that is, well, we got a bunch of people. Let's go move some lawns. We'll get revenue tomorrow, right? Let's go build custom software. We'll get revenue. It's really easy to do those things. But what's that really going to lead to? And it's kind of to your point, right, is it's not just in the really early days, financial forecasts, how to do more revenue last month than this month. It's almost the wrong things to focus on. There's a point at which those are the perfect things to focus on. But in the early days, it's really what is the true unit of value? What is the meaningful value that I can uniquely deliver? And everything should just be tailored around finding that value, finding something that's truly top of mind, because otherwise you might get. A little bit further, faster, but then you will plateau because you just will not be solving an important enough problem to get you to the 10 million, 50 million, 100
0: million ARR that you ultimately want to get to. Mm-hmm. Now, that's easier said than done when you've got investors barking at you to show them MRR or you've got you know angel investors to say, show me a quick 2, 3x return. The perfect example of a company that did this very well was Figma. They waited four years to get their first revenue, but they also had Sequoia and some of the best investors supporting them with capital for four years before they said to them, show us some revenue. So what other indicators would you look for to gauge a startup to see if they're close to finding product market fit besides revenue, obviously? Let me give you my own
1: story of like Jim, you know, I I spoke yesterday, uh, earlier about kind of GymTrack and the GymTrack pivot. The first iteration of GymTrack was the idea was you walk into a gym and everything you do is automatically tracked. And it was a really cool kind of idea. And the real problem with it was fundamentally the technology, like it it still doesn't exist today. So never mind 10 years ago. So we went after a really, really hard technical problem. Imagine like magically, you know, few orders of magnitude less, it wasn't billions, it was millions, but, but that was kind of the idea. Once we hired a new CEO, we took the company in a different direction. And here was kind of like the thesis, right? Which was, We've been in the gym industry for a long time. We're obviously pretty good at, let's say, hardware. And if we look at these clubs, you know, Movati or Good Life Fitness, Anytime Fitness, Retro Fitness, whatever, hundreds of locations, every location is probably spending $1 to $3 million on equipment. And if you ask the purchasing officer, hey, why did you buy 30 treadmills, 10K, 20K per treadmill? Why did you buy 30? Not 25. Like, you could have saved 100K. Why did you buy this leg press and not that one? There's no answer, right? It's literally just... Blind leading the blind because somebody felt like it that day. And these are $100,000 million decisions. So we were like, okay, well, you know what? We could put these really simple sensors on every single piece of equipment, understand when it's being used, when it's not being used, provide this dashboard to the operator so they can see what's popular in which locations, with which demographics, and just better make smarter purchasing decisions. This is the example of something that, like, you could see this in a deck. Like, you know, how many gym clubs, like how much money is being wasted, like how much you could save, like all these sort of things. The thesis kind of makes logical sense. We thought so too. So we went out to, to this conference, we had like 20 different demo meetings and we showed everybody the product and 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 these, these are like the true buyer types, like real personas, VP of operations, these sort of roles. And they're like, wow, this is amazing. Like this is going to change everything. I love it. Really want to work with you guys, blah, blah, blah. Out of those 20 meetings, which I I'll tell you, like, honestly, at least 15 were like amazing to the point that on day two of the conference, people were talking about us. We closed exactly one customer and it took us like over a year. And I still remember to this day installing the pilot at this customer. We're trying to charge like $5,000 a year. I'm in this customer's gym and they're walking us through. We're installing the pilot like sensors. And he's like, oh yeah. So like over here, we're buying eight new pieces of equipment. I bought two light presses, this, that, and the other. And I'm like, how much does that cost? He's like, oh, $80,000. I'm like, dude, I've been fighting for so long to get 5K out of you. And just this morning, you woke up and decided to spend 80. Clearly, I don't matter, right? Like, clearly, I don't matter. So it's a long way of kind of answering your question. But it's these things aren't necessarily rational or, or, or logical from like first principles. But at the end of the day, if I were to ask that customer, top of mind, hey, what's like your number one problem? Like, what do you worry about every day? And this is really simplifying it, right? But if I were to say that, I guarantee you, they would never say to me, well, I'm just not sure if my equipment mix is right. Like, that's just not going to be, it's probably going to be like number 15, and and that's the problem is that when you're solving number 15, you keep getting resistance. You keep not getting people to open their wallet. You keep getting pushed things like, oh, you know what? This is super cool. Like, come back next quarter. You know what? It's just come back next year. I mean, that is literally telling to your face you are not a priority because guess what? I am spending on other things. I'm just not spending on you. So there's like little indications, but it's, it's really at the end of early days, it's really not revenue. I mean, it's much more qualitative understanding your customer set and understanding really what do they care about on a day-to-day basis. If you ask them what their number one or number two problems is, they better say it's the ones you're solving. Otherwise, you're going to have to change something up.
0: Yeah, I mean, those things are so relevant, especially now when budgets are being cut across all organizations, especially like enterprise software organizations. And still startups think that the why of what they're building is important is really tiny in terms of the grand scheme of things that all these, you know, CIOs or CFOs are trying to solve every day. For you to understand what a customer actually is looking to spend money on or save money on, and at what kind of percentage of that overall allocation you represent is like question number one. So maybe you can discuss, you know, the times that when pivoting is crucial for startups when they start to encounter these types of tidbits of information where what they thought with their hypothesis was right is completely wrong. Let me let
1: me tell you a story on that, and just the principle for me is. Is, is pivot harder, faster, because we've all, both of us have met many founders who have pivoted. And I don't know about you, but I can't think of a single one who's ever said to me, oh man, I wish I didn't make that pivot. Like, <laughs> I wish I waited longer to make a pivot. It's always the opposite. It's always, I wish I pivoted sooner, right? So that should be the bias. My favorite story for this one, and I did a podcast with these guys, the founders of Noibu, not a very well-known company, even though they're they're well beyond Uh, eight figures in ARR and growing exceptionally well because they just they've never been on the kind of hype train but so these are two young founders who start off like I started like many first-time founders start off where their idea is basically born out of like wouldn't it be cool if right and so so specifically they're they're walking around they're like see they're you know they're into like retail and, and these sort of things and what they notice is You know, these retailers, clothing, like people sell t-shirts, sweatshirts, whatever, they spend so much time and money designing their stores, differentiating the look and feel of their stores. But then when you go to their websites, they're just these 2D catalogs. They all look the same. Wouldn't it be cool if we took 3D virtualizations of the stores and put them online, right? And then you could kind of click through the store and and whatever. That was idea number one. They're hustlers, right? So like they fought their way. They pushed up, like kind of pushing up a, a rock up a hill sort of thing. And two years into it, they had 15 customers, but they had $3,000 in MRR. That's all they had. And and at this point, I, and I was really close to these guys, so I was kind of getting these monthly updates. And they told me, you know, Pablo, I've got this. I know it's been really hard, but I finally, I'm finally unlocking it because I've got this whale of a customer, this enterprise customer, and they're like this close to signing. And as soon as they sign, they're just going to completely like destroy the revenue side. <laughs> like there is everything's going to change. And guess what? They get the call and the the customer is like, listen, you know, we really looked at it. We like you guys, um, but we just couldn't fit it into the budget this year. Come back next year. And that was like the catalyst, right? At this point, they just heard too many things and they closed it up. They went back to all of their customers. They had 15. They're all e-commerce customers. And they just did like grunt work research, like zero level research, right? Hey, tell me about your day. Like, tell me what things are like. What do you do? Blah, blah, blah. They had 15 of these conversations. They analyzed it. They found a few potential problems. They went back. The, the problem they unlocked was that one of one or two of them mentioned it. But then when they went back, everybody kind of aligned that this was a real problem. Which was that about five to ten percent of e-commerce revenue is lost at checkout because of checkout errors. So, like you might be on device X Y Z on browser eight point whatever, and for whatever reason, that combination of device and browser, when you click checkout, just won't work. It just doesn't work. And, and literally, that customer's fully sold, like they're ready to go and they can't check out. And they realized like, oh, well, we can actually identify these errors, figure out the cost of these errors and fix them. Two years after making that pivot, they went from zero to 300k MRR and they've grown since. And now they're doing like 10 million plus. And I don't mean to make it sound so simple, but like that to me was so clear of same team, similar timing. And the core difference was Solving like something that came out of it's not like they knew retail; they didn't know any of this stuff. So it was really just like, "Wouldn't it be cool if this happened?" And they went out and pitched and blah blah, blah and raised money and, and tried to do it. Versus a deep understanding of the customer set, the problems, finding real unique insights, and solving something that's already top of mind, so that when they go to retail, they're like, "Hey, we can we can eliminate the five percent, the ten percent you're losing every year to e-commerce errors They're like, "Oh, tell me more because I have to find out more about this."
0: Yeah, I mean, it's so true. You hear about all these stories and then the pivot happens and first the founders are like, I wish I did this sooner. And outsiders are like, oh, I can't believe they just you know figured this out now. But the problem is, is a lot of people don't understand is that it takes a long time for one to build trust in the relationship with your customers or potential customers to open up to what they're really feeling. And the best stories that we hear are when somebody comes to us and said, I've spent the last six months analyzing all of these potential customers and the problems they're facing. And this is what I've come back with. Because now I don't have to pay as an investor money and time for them to go figure that out. You know, we have a rule when it's coming to to an enterprise, you know, B2B SaaS company, we need you to speak with like 10 or 15 enterprises before we even think about investing. For a mid market SMB b business, it's more like 50 or something. Consumer, it's massive. The, the The landscape that you have to cover to understand if you have something there is massive. When I look at companies, I'm always like, tell me how you've gone through the process of understanding the problem and why this is such an important problem and what the potential you know, allocation of resources they have towards this. And obviously why now, just like a sales process. So maybe putting on your investor hat now, how does Mistral approach this concept of product market fit when assessing startups for investment? And how do you address that misconception that startups face about how the market is too small for, to for, to achieve viable product market fit? on the market size, like I've, Tim is just so (laughs) overhyped
1: as a concept that it's probably the most overhyped VC concept there is. And, And I know that like, you know, the Don Valentine will tell you it's all about the market and it is, it just depends on what kind of conception you have of the market. If you, if you're telling me that it's all about the bigger, the market, the better, then I just call BS on it right now. If we're talking about a market that's ready for change or, or for whatever reason is just in the right time, right place to kind of adopt something new, that's a different story. But for me, market size, you know, it's not that it's irrelevant, but it's really back of the envelope stuff. So the way I look at market size is, is there any way that this market could, in theory, lead to a $100 million AR business? And if it can, I'm kind of like, okay, this is where we invest. I mean, I think if you're a series B, series C, like late stage investor, it's a different ballgame in terms of the analysis. But where we play, fundamentally, our businesses are supposed to exit in seven to 10 years. And I don't know about you, but I don't have that crystal ball. So the best I can do is just back the envelope stuff to know, like, can it potentially be big enough? The thing I can look at is, of course, the quality of the team, which is number one. And then second of all, the resonance of the value prop, right? That is something that I can get much closer to because I can have actual conversations with the customers. And that's where I think we learn the most. But back to something that you said earlier, this idea of tell me how you got here. That's something that I also, you know, t- like I always start every single conversation with a founder is give me your background and give me the origin story. And you'd be surprised at how many founders are not able to go deep on that for whatever reason. And it doesn't, I, I haven't yet figured out the rhyme or reason. I, I think it's like they have a pitch deck, and, and this is not all of them, but many of them have a pitch deck and they just kind of want to get, you know, let me get into the pitch deck. Like, let me get into this thing that I built and practice. But I think as a founder, like, you have to be willing and ready to share, that's, that's a lot of the qualitative stuff will come out and and help me understand how much you really know your customer. Like that is really what I'm trying to get at is, did you just kind of land here? And here's the thing. And yeah, it sounds, you know, reasonable, like many pitches do, or did you actually do the work? Right? Do you have like the time and the detail to come out with the unique insights that actually position and actually have unlocked something new? And that's what I'm trying to get at. And, And frankly, I would say like, maybe one in 10 founders can actually do that properly.
0: Yeah, I think it's because no one wants to get rich slowly, to be honest, right? They don't want to solve something slowly. They want to come up with an idea, get it funded, start proving out the hypothesis, and then try to raise as much as they can to keep proving it out, even though the signals are totally misguided. Sometimes the best founders are the ones who come to us before they even have an idea, obviously not looking at fundraising. They're saying, hey, I'm going to keep bugging you for introductions to people that I think are interested in this idea I have, but I want to validate the problem first, and then I'm going to come back to you for a funny. I mean, those are the best relationships by far that we've always had when we work with new founders. But, you know, based on your experience, how should startups out there who are maybe at that sort of in-betweener stage, pre-seed, seed, seed seed plus, approach the decision-making process in order to pivot to find product market fit?
1: Look, this is like the most annoying thing ever, but after asking so many different people because that's one of the questions we, ask, we end on. I was like, when did you know you had product market fit? What does product market fit feel like? You know when you have it. <laughs> and, and it's the most annoying definition. But you, the founder, there's many things that, that we can help you with, right? Like if you've got, if you're trying to uh, grow your sales team, if you're trying to do, you know, marketing, if you're trying to figure out the best practices for like engineering, okay, those things have playbooks. But you, the founder, are the founder for a reason. Only you can get to product market fit. And we can see when you are doing things that are going to lead you astray, but we there's there's just no way that as the VC who's outside, who's spending a 10th at best, maybe like a 50th as much time in the problem set as you can tell you. And, and and unfortunately, there's just no hard and fast rule on, okay, if you see this and that, it's time to pivot.
0: Give me some early indicators that a startup might be struggling to find product market fit from what you've seen.
1: So for sure, what
0: I mentioned before, like if
1: you're constantly getting this there's two kind of things that customers will tell you that to me indicates lack of product market fit. First of all is, Hey, this is so interesting. We love this stuff. Just come back next quarter, come back next year. That's very, very common. The other one is the one more feature kind of syndrome, right? Which is no, no, they, they love it. They really want to buy. It's just that like we need to build this thing out and and that's when they're going to buy. So if you keep kind of getting that sort of feedback of, yeah, I know this is really cool, but like, if you could just build this one thing, that's when we would be interested anything that's effectively trying to push you down and then you have hard metrics around how easy is it for your pipeline to grow what's your demo to close what's your sao to close like these are other ratios that you can certainly look at and the companies that have better product market fit are just higher on those on those ratios right they tend to have more inbound than others they tend to close demos at like 40 50% and so these are other things that you could look at but but it's really the sum of all these things that you as a founder will feel When you have the sort of pull that, and and I could tell you story after story that, that's probably the best way, frankly, is like learning from stories about what product market fit really feels like and being honest with yourself about, do you think you have that kind of pull?
0: Yeah. So give me an example of like an innovative approach to finding product market fit that you've encountered, whether through a mistral or other stories and podcasts you've uh, interviewed guests on. Honestly, all, all of the stories there, there's always this, like
1: before startup mode, there's research mode. And so that's still to me, the big unlock which is whether it's implicit because you've been working in an industry for a long time or explicit because you went out and did like real research, real customer discovery, that's the part that gets skipped the most by far. And so another example in Toronto is um, a company called LumiQ. They had this like marketplace for hiring uh, accountants that, and this is the tough part, right? It's one thing if you put something out and you get no traction, then obviously you're going to kill it. It's It's easy if you crush it, then you're just going to keep going. But the tough challenges is when Things are kind of working, but just not working enough. And that's where these guys found themselves in because they had like half a million, $750,000 of revenue on this marketplace that would help companies hire- CPAs. Yeah, CPAs. And the challenge they were finding, it, like it makes so much sense. The idea is like, okay, you're a CPA. If, if you're like passive candidates are the best of candidates- and so the idea is like, you tell me specifically what kind of jobs you want, and we will alert you when those kind of jobs come up. And then on the other side, you have employers, and it's like, hey, these are the passive candidates, so obviously you want to tap into the pool, whatever. But what they found after, like, it's kind of similar to what I was talking about with Gym track, right, which is trying to just get a one-time $800 contract was so much work. And then even if they did it, and then even if they felt that role, guess what? The customer would go back to just doing status quo and going back to whatever kind of way of hiring they had before. So it was always kind of push, push, push. They kind of scratched that. They went back. They did, by the way, not 50, but 500 interviews with employers, with candidates, all these sort of things. And they found this issue around training, right? Like every county needs to do X numbers of hours of training. And uh, and they built effectively a podcast to do like training in a much more fun way. I went into my first meeting and I locked in a 20K ARR deal in 20 minutes. And it was like, it would take me like 100 meetings over months to get that kind of revenue before that's the black and white difference between solving problem problems and, and not. And so again, like a lot of this stuff is in, is in the details, but, and that was, by the way, that was him that told me, he's like, you see it when you have it, <laughs> like, you know, when you have it, and I'm yeah. like, man, I want something better, but yeah.
0: I remember we met those guys. I was so impressed. It was past the stage where we invest, but like uh, an incredible pivot and incredible opportunity. They've obviously blown up and done very well with kind of limited funding. What about the ADA pivot? I know you've talked about that a lot. Share with that with our guests.
1: Well, that one's really good because you mentioned something earlier about it's easy to, it's easier to send it done, which is always true, but even harder when you have uh, VCs that have backed you because the VCs backed like a certain plan and they're like, okay, here's my money kind of go execute. And so Ada started off, it was called Volley, and it was like the social search engine was getting some some usage, some traction, but, but not really kind of blowing up, let's say. And so what, what Mike, the CEO, found was that as they grew their user base, the quality of their customer service just decreased. He started to dig into that. And, and what he ended up doing, which is crazy, but him and his co-founder ended up, like these are now, they've already raised about half a million dollar pre-seed, so they're a funded, like venture back business. And instead of be like, doing CEO things, they decide, okay, we're gonna all we're gonna go all in on this customer service problem. And they become customer support agents for seven different companies. Like they get hired and they're full time working as customer support agents and they do it for a year. And what they do over time is they start to like automate themselves out of that, out of that job. And what comes out of it is Ada, like the chatbot for customer service. That's just tying things back right now. How many chatbot companies were there? This is like, I think 2015-ish era, like explosion of chatbots, right? There were so many. And so from the outside, I remember being like, I'm not sure what's interesting about this. But if you had talked to Mike at that time and he had told you, I got to this because I spent a year doing it myself and automating myself out of a job, that would change everything because it's not about, oh, customer service sucks. Let's build customer service chatbots. That's super high level. This is in the weeds. Like These are the things that I found personally really suck in, in that world. Here's exactly how I automated it. Here's how I know it works. And and so those are the details that make such a big difference. The rest is history sort of thing. Like They're unicorn. They're doing 50 million plus ARR. There's obviously many things between then and th- then and there, but it's that nugget ultimately of really understanding those customer pain points and doing Pretty insane things, truly insane focus in order to, to get there.
0: Yeah, I mean, you talked about this with uh, uh, Mark Eng as well at Bolt Logistics, you know, Go bold about how he did every single task at the very early days of Second Closet just to feel the pain and interact with the customers and get real-time feedback. I think the lesson for a lot of first-time founders and early-stage startup founders is don't delegate every single role super early until you've actually been on the ground doing all those things first. I mean, maybe you know some of the accounting work you can, but like not the customer part, not the, the product innovation part. Get very close to that feedback loop early on so you can feel the pain points and making sure that you're pivoting fast enough, which is obviously what Mark did and what Mike did and other founders have done too. But one other thing that Mike had at Ada was, Patient investors like Boris Wirtz in version one, one of the most patient investors out there. So as a venture capitalist yourself, how do you balance patience and urgency when a portfolio company is seeking and struggling to find product market fit?
1: The thing I'm impatient towards and and part of it is kind of you know, self-development is when it's clear that the problem they're trying to solve isn't a top of mind problem. But what they're doing is instead of trying to just have hard conversations and pivoting, trying something completely new, going back to first principles, they're trying to like solve it with polish, solve it with like a different, you know, go to market or solve it with a different features on the product. And you just can kind of tell having seen so many of these, because that's what we have. Like we have not nearly as much depth as any of the founders we work with, but we do have more breadth. We do have more patterns we can pull on. And- That's, that's harder to have patience for when it's like, okay, I think this thing is just not like at the core, there's something that's broken and you're not going to solve it with things on the kind of periphery. That's hard to have patience for. Now, if I have a founder on the other extreme, where by the time you're like, man, this thing's like kind of not really working and you call them, they're like, yeah, yeah, I know that thing's obviously not working. And like a month ago, I actually started doing this other thing. <laughs> like I'm trying this other thing over here. And here's why I think this could work. And so they're constantly like it, then we could do that for years. Like, cause at the end of the day, there is no, there is no rule for this. There's no like, oh, if you don't solve it in a year, it's, it's never going to work. Like it could work on a year, two years, three years. Like, what are you talking about Figma earlier? So as long as they're making moves fast and learning and being willing to just like Not fall into this kind of sunk cost fallacy. Oh well, I built this whole product. Like you know, maybe if I just add one more thing, it's going to work. It's like just it's always blank slate, right? Imagine you walked into this company today. What would you do? I mean, that's the way you should act every single time.
0: Yeah, it's like yeah, people think it's like Noah's Ark. If you build it, they will come. But it's kind of the opposite in startups. It's like if you know what they are needing, then go build it. Then they will end up paying you for it. Is kind of the way you should be thinking about it. And the problem with that is. There's this sort of chicken and egg of like, well, I need to build it first to show people something with the demo and like a pilot, and then I'll convert them and they'll, and they'll be long-term customers. I mean, how many startups do you have in your portfolio that have been able to close deals basically on just Figma mockups, and then go and build it the right way and get people to go through that? Obviously, at discounts and things like that. But do you find it's uh, hard for founders to try and wait long enough to build something before they actually feel like really confident in what they're building is going to add value, or you think they rush to build something first and then just push it out the door and sell it as fast as they can.
1: Most founders, especially ones like, you know, first time that haven't been through it and don't really know the pain associated with building and having to throw away, for sure kind of jump into building. And I think it's human psychology because when you're in this kind of research mode, like just take back just a concrete example, like take Mike at Ada, and he's in this year of being a customer service agent. He, by the way, still goes to dinners. He still has friends and family, still goes to parties. He still has to answer the question, which you'll do every single time. Like, hey, what are you working on these days? What are you up to? And he's like, oh, I'm a customer service agent for like five companies. Like I just do customer support every day. Right. It's like nobody wants to be, be, you know, or worse than that, like, oh, I'm just doing customer discovery. Oh, what do you mean? Oh, well, what's your startup do? Well, I don't actually really know yet. Like we're just figuring it out. How many months can you do that until you're like, you know what? Like Let's just do this thing (laughs) because I just want to get the building. I want to get the selling. Like, that's why I'm a founder. Not so I could, most founders are not scientists. They're not academics, they're builders. And so they want to build, they want to sell. That's just what drives them. And that's why it's so tough to stay in this research mode for as long as you need to until you figure out something worth solving. But like the founder of High Mama told me, if you're going to spend 10 years doing this, you better invest a few months to make sure it's worth it because otherwise it's going to hurt way more down the road.
0: Yeah. I think also the hard thing is like the minimum viable product dilemma that a lot of founders have where they never think what they have is good enough. And so they're always trying to throw more, you know, darts at the board to see what sticks with customers when really they should be just trying to get customers to give them as much feedback as possible with a minimum viable product and then go and double down once they've felt enough pull from customers, kind of like certain did their initial product. And then obviously the market changed on them with COVID and things just took off from there. But how do you think founders should think about minimum viable product building versus real investment in product before they've actually found like product solution fit?
1: There's, you know, there's so much kind of, let's say, literature around uh, around the MVP, but most of it is correct. Like, I mean, you you know, the the diagram of like the the skateboard and the bike and then the car, right? So this idea that like the MVP is is not just like this half product that kind of half works, it just, it does less. And that's another, I think, principle that I've seen through and through is focus, it's like, it's the whole way through though. It starts with your end customer and being super specific, you kind of alluded to this before, but who your end customer really is, the broader that that set of personas is in your mind, the more your marketing has to be non-precise, the bigger and more bloated your product and your MVP have to be. And everything just gets more and more confusing and complicated over time. So if you start off with a really clear, persona and therefore really clear problem set, that helps you build an MVP that gets that customer from zero to one on whatever thing you're trying to do with the minimum fluff around it as possible. Obviously, over time, you want to kind of expand that and expand that. And then it's different in different places, right? Like I was just going through the the Shopify story and like what Toby built as V1 MVP of Shopify was no joke. Like, and he took over a year to build it because, hey, it's a platform. Like at the end of the day, V1 needed to let somebody run and operate a business, you know, that's that level, you know, but there's other types of products where what you're trying to enable your customer to do doesn't require that level of investment, but you should always do the least possible to get some unit of value to to your customer.
0: Yeah. And also like the, the holding true to long-term vision versus short-term needs kind of equation is tough. Like when the market changes on you, you kind of have to throw that long-term vision to the side. When ChatGPT came out, I'm sure a lot of customer support or a lot of you know, summarization tools and legal startups, you know, were kind of shaking at the knees about their long-term vision because the entire market got changed up from underneath them. So how do startups, in your opinion, need to think about balancing long-term vision with the immediate needs to find product market fit? I think the best founders are opportunists through
1: and through, like strategy obviously matters, but it—it it is a, it's a far second to just leveraging opportunities as they come. Really, the trade is understanding right now we're in in November 2023, and the number of people, the percent of people who really understand what's going on today is actually very low. You don't need to predict and just have this vision of in five years, the future is going to be like that. Therefore, this is what I need to do to get there. If you just understand what's actually happening today and everything that's going on better than most, you have a huge edge. And if you can react faster and take advantage of opportunities as they come up, partially because you don't have blinders on about how you want things to be. You just kind of are totally clear as to how things are. That's probably the trait that that really sell, sets uh, set founders apart. One one example that comes to mind is you look at the, the Nike story, and PhilNet finds a company that is manufacturing Nikes illegally, right? And your kind of first reaction would be, well, let's shut them down. Like, let's shut them down, and frankly, let's sue them for everything they've got. And what he does is he's like, man, these guys are pretty good. Like th- these Nikes look a lot like my Nikes, you know, let's sign them. <laughs> and so he signs them, right? So like that kind of perspective of just taking advantage of things as they come and being an opportunist, I think that's that's a defining trait of great founders.
0: Yeah. You know, what's funny about that story is when I was in high school, I worked for a counterfeit infringement law firm that actually represented Nike going after a lot of the counterfeit goods. But what we learned, I learned was that the goods that were being manufactured, uh, illegally were the same factories overseas that were producing the actual authenticated stuff. They were just being produced after hours. So they didn't go through the same quality control checks. And therefore they had a little bit of nuances that were different, but they were both produced in the same factory and Nike knew that. Uh, so they were just trying to control quotas at that point, uh, which was really funny to learn about the, the counterfeit market that way. But, you know, I want to switch gears and talk about you being a podcast host as well. Uh, amazing show. Talk about like why you started this, what the journey has been like, and maybe some of your favorite lessons that you've learned uh, from listeners or from guests you've had on the show.
1: So it's been an amazing ride. I mean, I started this because I found that while there's so much there's so much, there's so so much, much content out there, there's so much like entrepreneurship content, not a lot of it was 100% focused on zero to one, on finding product market fit. And as a seed stage investor and working with pre-product market fit companies and helping them get the product market fit, which is usually kind of when you raise a series A, I just wanted to dive into that, and honestly, I started to like help founders by creating content, and then I realized I actually helped myself so much because it gave me such a deeper understanding of what product market fit is. and this is way more art than science. so it's it's hard to like just read one single book and have a formula for you know how you go from one to ten million, that's one thing. but having a formula how you go to zero to one and kind of find product market fit. You know, I'm not sure that it that it exists, even after having interviewed like 50 plus late stage founders. That's why I started it. And and it's been amazing to me how much I've learned. And obviously, I've, I've shifted and changed things around. And now I'm exploring more kind of these big companies and looking into their zero to one part of the journey and trying to understand and, and kind of deconstruct what it is that they did to find product market fit for the simple reason that it interested me, <laughs> hopefully, you know, interests others
0: as well. So it's been it's been a great ride. No, it's amazing. Yeah, I mean, it's super interesting. It's, uh, it's selfish for you to be able to, you know, get to enjoy these stories firsthand and then reshare them, which is the selfless part about it. But, you know, I, I always love learning those origin stories. There was a book I remember getting as a kid. It was like the top 50 companies in America and their origin stories from way back in like the 1800s with like DuPont Chemicals or FedEx or things like that. And they're just such amazing stories to hear about. Uh, and there's like some stacks like My First 1000, which is stories about getting my first 1000 users. Uh, which are also cool stories like Peloton and things like that. But share, you know, some of your favorite product market fit success stories that you've interviewed that our listeners should check out.
1: One of the latest episodes, you know, How Nike Found Product Market Fit, I think is uh, is always a fun one. I spoke about Noibu, Ada, LumiQ. Those are great episodes. One of my my favorite ones is actually the story of Blockthrough, a really good friend of mine. I, I call him the the founder cockroach because this guy, you know, just – can't be killed. And so I, I find his story is so encouraging. I mean, every time I, I tell it, I, I find there's just so much resonance from the audience because he went through eight years as a founder, three different companies getting like truly having nothing to show for it and never gave up, frankly, just never gave up. And then finally, he put something out that had like incredible product market fit and yet ended up exiting for close to $100 million. And so now he's doing extremely well, but he went through a lot to get there. And I just find one of the learnings from there is that even if you take all the lessons from all these companies, there's no guarantee that the startup you're working on or the product you're working on is going to get product market fit. Because again, this is more art than science. But I did find that listening to that sort of block through the only guaranteed way of finding product market fit, it does exist. Uh, but it's not, you know, something that that most people will be like fond of, because it's just like just stay in the game. <laughs> like, that's really what it is. It's like, and I'm not saying don't give up on right? I don't even mean like, don't give up on this one thing. Like he, he gave up on products, he gave up on companies. But I mean, if you just don't start, if you just get at bats and at bats and at bats and at bats, at one point you will find it. Unfortunately, that's the only guarantee that exists. But, but uh yeah, that that's a, that's a favorite episode of mine.
0: Oh, definitely have to check that one out. Well, before we wrap things up, we always ask our guests for their fast favorites. So first off your favorite podcast,
1: my first million. They're just, uh, you know, so entertaining. Like, that's just what it is. The dynamic that they have. Uh, like obviously, it's interesting because they talk about business stuff, but the dynamic that they have and yeah, I, I just I haven't found a, a match. There's so many other podcasts I listen to, but that one is the one I, I find myself.
0: You think he will get the CEO job at uh, All In Podcast?
1: Oh, <laughs> I don't I don't know if yeah, I'd. he had <laughs> a great funny. application.
0: I thought that'd be pretty cool. Next is your favorite newsletter or blog.
1: Uh it's trajectory. So it's trajectory. I mean, Ben Thompson is like frankly, like business tech, he's the smartest guy that that I've ever listened to in my life.
0: Yeah, an incredible blog. Third is your favorite tech gadget.
1: I'd say these AirPods, man. Like they're just so simple but so effective.
0: Yeah, I know. I was looking at getting like ones that go directly in your ear for recording podcasts, and nothing beats the airpods. They're quite universal and versatile. So agree on that. Next is your favorite new trend.
1: New trend. I mean, this is obviously hype, but I I think the mix of like everybody's on just AI and I find that what's going to happen with AR and AI is going to be like, that's when the truly revenue revolutionary stuff that I can't predict, like the Ubers of the world, that's when they're going to really come out. So I'm excited to see
0: what happens there. Like the hu- humane pin, you think the the pin is going to be, or is that the first generation? No, iteration? not so
1: much humane, but maybe more like the, the Ray-Ban, like the Ray-Ban Meta stuff. Uh, maybe it, yeah. like the the Vision Pro as well. Like, but that like the fact that there's now this new device, and therefore like these new inputs mixed with AI, just feels like the right sort of technologies coming together to put out new you know, totally new use cases that, that I can't think of. Like I can't, predict. it's like I have a list of what's going to happen. I just, I think there's going to be some interesting that comes out of that.
0: Yeah. Someone will pivot perfectly at the right time for yes, that for sure. Yes.
1: And uh, next is your favorite book. Uh, Men's Search for Meaning by uh, Victor Frankl. I, it's like changed my perspective on, uh, on life. It's not, it's not a startup book. It's like a, a life philosophy
0: book. Yeah. Philosophy. Do you read it often? Do you go back to it every so often?
1: I've read it probably three times at this point.
0: Yeah. Nice. And uh, last but not least, your favorite life lesson probably
1: the, the Ray Dalio idea of, of really the only thing that matters is meaningful to have like a, a great life, it's meaningful work and meaningful relationships, plus good health. And and I just, I'm a fan of simplicity and that just like, you know, it's hard to, uh, to argue that there's really anything else that, that matters at the end of the day.
0: No, wise words from a wise man. So thanks so much for joining us in the tank today with Pablo Srugo partner of Mistral Ventures. Thanks, Matt. Appreciate it. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Tank Talks. We hope you found today's conversation as insightful as we did. If you're enjoying the show, we've got three quick things to ask of you. First, hit that subscribe button on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or YouTube. Next, follow us and stay up to date on upcoming episodes and behind-the-scenes content on social media with Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. And lastly, share the love. If you found value in today's episode, share with a friend or colleague could benefit too. Your support helps us bring in more amazing guests and keeps the Tank Talks engine running. That's it for today. Until next time, keep disrupting and innovating.